From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Francis is out tonight. I'm your host, Marjorie Sensor. The Office of Personnel Management has moved 22 employees to its HR line of business, which is being renamed Human Capital Data Management and Modern Modernization. The Employees Union says AOPM made the move without allowing it to bargain over the change. GovExec reports the union also says GSA is supporting the new team and the move could violate the ban on the merger between OPM and GSA. Ambassador Steve Accard is out as Acting Inspector General of the State Department. His resignation comes after Steve Linick was fired from the agency's IG role in May. GovExec reports the State Department says Accard is returning to the private sector. The Office of Management and Budget will start up a data science reskilling program for federal employees in mid-September. The program's first class of about 60 federal employees will take classes online for eight hours a week over the course of six months. Federal News Network reports students will also complete an agency-specific capstone project. The Senate Republicans' Health, Economic Assistance, Liability, Protection, and Schools Act, or HEALS Act, would provide about a trillion dollars in coronavirus relief, including $20 billion for the Agriculture Department. It comes months after the House passed the Health and Economic Recovery Omnibus Emergency Solutions Act, or the HEROES Act. Mike Hedinger is president of Hedinger Strategy Group. Rich Butel is principal at Cirrus Analytics. Thanks for being here. Mike, let's start with you. What are you following in these coronavirus relief bills? Well, I, I think following a couple things, right? I, the first one is, is anything going to get done here in the next couple of weeks, right? Because we've got, um, you know, I used the word yesterday, slogging along, but, um, and I was just looking as we were getting ready for the show, I think uh, Pelosi and Schumer are gonna meet again with the White House at, at five o'clock today. So it's really moving slowly. And with the, you know, uh, the fact that the unemployment insurance has, you know, the extra money has expired, um, there's a lot that they need to get done. And so, you know, we're watching that overall process and then obviously looking at uh, at some of the technology and contractor specific provisions as well. And, and Mike, what do you think are the prospects for either of these um, bills getting through in kind of the state they are right now? They're going to have to come together. I mean, you know, I, there's basically $2 trillion apart, right? You've got a trillion dollar um, uh, Senate bill and a three and a half or $3 trillion House bill. They're going to have to come together, but there's some priorities they need to address, like state and local funding, uh, something that the, the Democrats have said is a red line. So somehow they're going to have to come together on this, and they're obviously working hard. They're meeting every day, but uh, but you know, being two billion or two trillion dollars apart's a, a big number there. Sure, Rich. What are you following in in the bills in terms of um, technology pieces of interest or agency pieces of interest? What jumped out at you? Well, we have. Uh particular interest in refunding the Section 3610 uh, uh, renewal uh, for contractor reimbursements for COVID impacts of the workforce. Um, we're also tracking very closely the status of the Technology Modernization Fund, uh, which uh, uh, has not been uh, funded by the Republicans, but uh, the Democrats had asked for it. And I think that's a key, a key a tool for IT modernization. And we're also looking at uh, uh, state and local government commitments to assist them. Uh, they're very uh, in very dire straits with regard to uh, their their old legacy systems and and really need additional uh, assistance in that regard. And and of these three um, kind of priority areas, do you think one of one of them has a better chance of getting through than the others, or are they all sort of uh, on the fence here? 
Well, there's all on the fence, but I think the TMF in particular is something that has very strong uh, Democratic support with repeated letters uh, coming in from, from various uh, Democratic uh, Senate and, and congressmen. So I, I'm, I'm optimistic uh, that we'll get the TMF something. Mike, what and, do you... And I would just, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, would, I was just going to say, I'll, I'll add to that. I think the, the you know state and local funding to improve their IT systems you know, there was like 1.1 billion in the HEALS Act um, for um, improvements around the, the unemployment insurance program, but there was flexibility built in um, that would allow them to, to use some of that money to upgrade their IT. And that was something that we've been pushing uh, really for the last, you know, two or three months. You know, Rich and I have been working with um, our colleagues in the trade associations to try to push these priorities. So. Um, I think that's, to me, that's something that's that's in there. It's kind of an agreement that both sides um, can come to, and I'm hopeful we see more money at the state and local level. And Mike, what do you think the the benefits there would be um, if if that it was to go through? Well, I mean, you need they need to modernize their systems, right? At, at the end of the day, unemployment insurance, Medicaid, some of these programs that are federal programs, um, but or, or federal money that are administered at the state level, um, have have really old systems right some are cobalt based some are um are you know older than that in some cases so i think um it, making those improvements obviously not overnight but over time is really important and we've seen stories where you know people had to go into the office because there were faxes coming in or they had to go into the office because there was no automation whatsoever around these programs and the money's been slow to get out in, in unemployment insurance for example um, and, and that's a challenge and something that uh, that this money would help address Rich, I also want to dig in a little more to the Section 3610 piece. Um, obviously, a lot of interest uh, to contractors. How likely do you do you see that? It's an important aspect of, of maintaining workforce readiness in a steady state. But one quick broader point: um, these legislations going forward have really reflecting the tectonic shift in the need to do collaborative telework and a major change in the way we work with government. Right. And, and then um, just to finish up, Rich, with uh, 30 seconds to go, um, thoughts on how these are going to come together? What are you watching there to kind of see what the, the finished product is going to look like? Well, we're just, we're in the same boat as everybody else, just trying to, to see how the negotiations go and, uh, and the extent that the Senate Republicans uh, come forward with a compromise note. Thank you both for being here. Appreciate it. Thanks, Marjorie. Up next, improving federal hiring practices. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the government can promote diversity in the workplace. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. A new bill in the Senate could establish a government-wide initiative to promote diversity and inclusion in the federal workforce. Here with best practices for diversifying federal hiring, Jeff Neal is former Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. He's Chairman of the National Academy of Public Administration, and he's writing about racism and hiring for his blog, ChiefHRO.com. Thanks for being here, Jeff. How do you think this kind of national conversation we're having about diversity will play out in the federal government? Well, I think it's something that's really important that's going on right now. And what it's done is it's raised awareness, I think, about racism in ways that we haven't seen in a long time. And what I wrote about is, is the way that racism, in many respects, hides in plain sight in federal HR practices. You know, a good example is the hiring practice. 
there's a lot that goes on in hiring that people do because they think they're they're doing it for merit and they think it's going to result in merit-based hiring. But what it actually results in is discrimination and it's not really merit-based at all. And so, so there are a lot of instances like that. And I just gave a few examples in the blog where where people think they're doing the right thing, but because of the racism that was baked into the process long ago, uh, what they're doing is actually something that can be discriminatory. And, and it, it seems like, um, you know, as you, as you look at it, some of it maybe can be uh, changed by individuals, but some, as you note, is baked into the process and certain requirements. Um, what does it take to kind of get that addressed? Well, a, a good example is things like people requiring education for a job where education isn't actually required. You know, a lot of people just think that a, a candidate with a bachelor's degree or a candidate with a master's degree is a better candidate than one without, even if the position they're filling doesn't have any kind of degree requirement. And they'll tell you that that's because it, it um, shows that the person can learn, shows that the person can get through a long program at school, shows a variety of other things. What it what they don't talk about and what they may not know is that if you look at at educational attainment in the United States by racial and ethnic groups, you find out that that more Asian folks have gone to uh, the school and gotten a degree, more white folks have, smaller numbers of uh, African Americans and Hispanics have. And so if I impose a degree requirement where there really is no degree requirement, what I'm doing in fact is disadvantaging Hispanic and African American American because I put in a requirement that isn't real. Same thing happens when somebody says, oh, I'm going to I'm going to give a benefit to the people who have 15 years of experience over the people who only have five. And I don't know if you've, you're, you're probably too young to have been in a job for a long time, but you know, once you've been in the job for five or six years, you've pretty well encountered everything you're going to encounter in that job. So if I give a benefit to the person who's been there 15 years instead of the person who's been there five, I'm giving an advantage to people who've been around longer. And if you look at representation in a lot of organizations, you'll find that, that the people who were there the longest are the older white folks and the people who have been there less are the younger or minority folks. And so saying I'm gonna give an advantage to somebody because they've got a lot of years of experience is another way that you bake some racism into the process. And that kind of thing has been going on for a long time. And, and I think it's time that we start looking at it and really looking at the effect of the, the types of requirements that we're putting into jobs when we fill them. If, if we look at them very closely, I think what we're gonna find is that, that some of what we've done, although it wasn't done by people who had racist intent, has a discriminatory outcome and the outcome is the thing we should worry about uh, not what the intent of the person was who who made the decision to do something what do you think it takes to to kind of address that does that require action from capitol hill or something uh, higher levels of government or do you think agency by agency hiring manager by hiring manager you can kind of look at those requirements um maybe in a more nuanced way i, I think you can do it with individual hiring managers, individual HR specialists. You can do it with agency leaders who say, I'm not going to allow my agency to do this type of thing. So you can you can actually handle this without Congress changing the law. The law already says you can't discriminate. 
the problem is that a lot of these things are cloaked in merit when they're really not merit-based. The same thing happens with a lot of things related to discipline and adverse action. I did a study a long time ago that showed that when you look at similarly situated people who did the same type of misconduct, that African-American employees might get suspended where a white employee might only get a letter of reprimand. Those are things that agencies can fix. So a lot of the stuff that's going on is stuff that's very fixable, and it's very fixable by the agencies without waiting for the president or for the Congress to take action and not waiting for the law to be changed. They simply have to examine their own practices much more carefully and look at not just the fact that they might have something they think is merit-based, but look at how required something really is. Is that degree really required? Is extra experience really required? And then when you look at things like disciplinary and adverse actions, make certain that you don't just compare a person to what happened to them and say, oh, well, you know, Fred did something bad, and so he deserved to be suspended. Look at how different employees who commit the same offenses are disciplined and make certain that you can not only explain why you disciplined a particular person and how you did, but how that person's discipline stacks up to other employees who committed similar offenses. And if we do that, I think what we can do is find that a lot of this stuff is fixable, excuse me, as long as folks start recognizing racist behavior for what it is, even when people didn't intend to be racist. Thanks so much for being here, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Up next, a surge in telehealth appointments at the Department of Veterans Affairs and what it means for IT. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the agency has accommodated the growth. Don't forget, if you missed an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. This month's Digital VA is brought to you by Pure Storage. Telehealth appointments at the Department of Veterans Affairs are up from about 2,000 a day before the pandemic to about 27,000 a day now. The increase in telehealth and teleworking has meant a surge of calls to the IT service desk. Lynette Sherrill is Executive Director of Enterprise Command Operations at the Department of Veterans Affairs Office of Information Technology. Thanks for being here, Lynette. Tell us about how your work at um, the VA has shifted since the start of the coronavirus. Hi, Marjorie. It's nice to be here. Um, our work has shifted. Um, in my organization, the biggest portion has been the enterprise service desk. In a typical year, our internal IT enterprise service desk takes about 5 million tickets and about 3.2 million phone calls a year. And in the first week of our response to the pandemic, we saw that double. We went from an average of about 50,000 calls a week to 96,000 calls, largely due to the shift to the at-home work. You know, one-third of VA's workforce um, shifted to working from home, and that really was a direct directly related to our increase in call volume that we had. And that's been the biggest shift is supporting those at-home workers to make sure 
that they get their IT questions and issues answered and responded to. And, and how has your team expanded to accommodate this increased number of calls and tickets? So we um, largely, a couple, of, a couple of years ago, VA started its digital transformation. And um, about two years ago, we shifted our enterprise service staff ticketing system and phone system to a software as a service platform. That really gave us the technology to respond to the demand that we saw with this. But admittedly, it didn't give us the number of agents to answer all of the phone calls that were coming in. So we did leverage that new technology to rapidly deploy other channels for our end users that were new at-home workers to get those frequently asked questions answered through external facing websites and, and um, newsletters and emails that we were sending out to just really keep them up to date with anything new that was happening within the environment that they needed to respond to as a new at-home worker. And, and what kind of um, uh, calls are you typically receiving? What are the most common kind of uh, needs you see? So in the, in the beginning of the pandemic, the first eight weeks was when we saw the highest call volume. And we saw it's a brand new teleworker is at home for the first time, and they don't know how to set their government computer up on their home network. And so that really it extended our call times. We typically average about a 12-minute call time. That call time extended to about 45 minutes to an hour to just walking the user through step-by-step step how to get that new, that new equipment connected to their home network and get connected to the VA. So about 75% of that call volume was really that remote access, getting them set up, getting them working, and getting them comfortable in that new environment. And now that you know we were kind of past that early stage, um, are you seeing the, the number of calls start to decline? Are you seeing um, the kinds of questions shift? Yes, we are. Um, we have not returned to the pre-pandemic call volume. We're still elevated, but not nearly as much. We're, we're averaging more about 60,000 calls a week now as opposed to the 96. And um, the questions are becoming more normal. We have less and less new teleworkers coming in, so everybody's pretty used to working at home now. And we are seeing the normal, like I can't get into this application or this website anymore, or you know, I'm getting an error message when I try to log into you know, XYZ application. So more normal activity is starting to happen. I think we're getting used to working from home, getting used to that environment. So it really has changed the, the calls that we've had. And so we've shifted to accommodate that, but we continue to update those frequently asked questions and make sure that our end users are getting the best possible experience when they're calling. And how do you measure um, satisfaction with the service desk? So we have a, a several quality programs, um, but through the most part it's surveys, um, phone surveys, as well as email surveys, where we take direct feedback from our customers. Our customer satisfaction scores at our service desk have remained at about 98%. Um, throughout. Um, we did see a slight dip in the beginning of our response to the coronavirus, and it, it dipped to 96%. But because of the quality programs that we have in place, we were able to quickly shift based on that immediate customer feedback that we have that comes in regularly. And as we see that, we shift our solution, shift our call scripts, and shift how we're handling those things on that based on that direct customer feedback. And as you look ahead, um, I, I'm sure you're expecting maybe some continued elevation in, in the levels of calls. 
How is your team preparing? What are you expecting kind of going forward? So we're constantly working to a, what we call a shift left mentality, giving the customer the answer to their, their question in a self-service way, in a way that they want to, um, that they want to, that they want to receive the answer. Some people like to look it up. Some people like to have a video. Some people like to use chatbot, and some people like to make the phone call to the service desk and interact with one person. So we are looking at all those channels. Over the next few months, we'll be rolling out a larger, we have a pilot of chatbot now for those customers that enjoy just chatting through a web page with, with, um, with the service desk agent. We're gonna, we're expanding our self-service knowledge documents and we're starting to develop how-to video little short 30-second snippet videos that walk the customers through some of their most frequently asked questions. And, and so it sounds like you think this might mean some uh, kind of permanent changes at your office uh, even after the pandemic. Um, well, we're always not really permanent. Well, they will be permanent, but there are things that we've been planning all along as part of our just innovation and our, our strategies to continue to drive the digital transformation in VA. We want to um, continually give our customers the best experience through multiple channels, multiple avenues, and and through all of the media and technology that's out there today that they're experiencing when they interact with any other company in industry. Thank you so much, Lynette. Thank you. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join us weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sensor. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.